Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everyone, this is Josh. Welcome to The Emerald. If you're new to the work and it's resonating and you're interested in supporting the podcast and the work that goes into it and the keeping of this mythic vision alive and well, please consider becoming a patron. It only costs as little as $6 a month and it really helps me out with the costs associated with producing What I hope everyone realizes is a pretty production-intensive podcast. There's music, there's studio time involved, there's a lot of editing. There are books that I buy, there are musicians that I need to pay, and I try to pay the musicians that contribute, and I'm really doing all of it myself. (laughs) So um, if you appreciate the vision and want to support you can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. And all patrons get access to our twice monthly study groups. I post additional conversations and content for patrons. There are a lot of benefits. When I start leading mythology tours again, which is coming soon, spoiler, spoiler, you'll get discounts on these. And so there are a whole lot of benefits to becoming a patron, and it really helps me out a lot in continuing to do this work. Thank you so much for your support. And as many of you know, I'm going to be starting a year-long mythic immersion, a dive into somatics, myth, and ritual, three things so necessary for healing some of the hurts of this modern world. And it's going to begin in October, and I'm starting to gather names now. There seem to be a good number of people interested. If you want to dive in or you want more information about the course, email me at themythicbody at gmail.com. That's themythicbody at gmail.com. Thank you, and on to our episode. So if you've listened to the previous three episodes, the one on the goddess, the one on the metaverse, and the one on snail juice and werewolves, then you've heard me dip a bit into a topic that definitely warrants its own episode. What topic am I speaking of? Shapeshifting. Shapeshifting, you know, shapeshifting. The myths are full of stories of shapeshifting. We have to be careful of using words like universal, but if anything is universal in the myths of all the cultures of the world, it is shapeshifting. Have you heard? We live in a world of shapeshifters. The forces of nature, the old gods themselves are shapeshifters. Have you heard of the wandering Allfather who discarded his human form and became a raven? Have you heard of Brahmari Devi who transmogrified into a swarm of bees? Tell me, how does a person grow black feathers from their skin? How does it feel for flesh to become bees? Have you heard of the ephemeral blue god who slept on a coiled serpent in a vast milky ocean? and then dreamed himself into the body of a fish, and a turtle, and an eagle, and a boar, 
and a horse, and a sage, and an archer, and a flute player? Have you heard of Zeus, now a swan, now a bull, now a serpent, now a lightning bolt, now a quail, now a cloud? Now a quail, now a cloud. Zeus, the lightning force of life itself, mutable, changeable, ephemeral as a cloud, shifting shape, discarding old skin, always becoming the new, responding to the pulse of the breath of the world by morphing, changing, reimagining, reforming in an eternal protean dance. When the Christian church sought to distance itself from the pagan Greek traditions, it specifically pointed to shape-shifting as a sign that the Greek gods were primitive and demonic. For how could a god that is eternal, static, and true ever change? How could we put our trust, our love, our faith in a shape-shifter? And then, of course, you have to wonder, did they even read their own sacred book? For the God of the Old Testament, as Mark Wallace reminds us, shifts shape all the time, appearing now as wind, now as fire, now as a flaming thicket, now as a dove, now as a whirlwind or as a great fish, as a lamb, as a voice that emerges from the throats of animals. The Old Testament God, quote, walks and talks, sprouts leaves and grows roots in the good soil of creation and, clothed in feathers and flesh, takes flight and soars through the updrafts of wind and sky. The spirit, Genesis says, hovers, flutters, sweeps over the watery deep as a divine animal hybrid, as a great mother bird. The Watery Deep Water, of course, is a shapeshifter. It shifts to fit the shape of its container. And so the old sea gods and sea nymphs were shapeshifters too. The first shapeshifter, the Greeks might say, was Proteus, the sea god, the herder of sea creatures, from whom we get the word Protean. Quote, The liquid god, the god of elusive sea change, from Proteus comes the adjective protean, meaning versatile, mutable, or capable of assuming many forms. Proteus, with the upper body of a man and the lower body of a sea snake. Proteus, who was also a lion, a leopard, a boar, a tree. Have you seen him? In the waves, as a pride of lions in the waves, as a garden of white flowers in the waves. Have you seen the sea foam at the crest of the wave reimagine itself as a charge of horses? Or as the dripping edifice of the Sagrada Familia? Each foam finger drawing away from the other in suspended slow motion like Michelangelo's Adam in reverse. All the stories in the sea foam, the voices in the sea foam, the sirens who sing eternal of a world in a constant flux, in a constant dance. When we understand how prevalent shapeshifting is, that the stories of our ancestors, the felt experience of our ancestors, teems with shapeshifting gods and shapeshifting spirits and shapeshifting people, and people as plants and people as tigers and people as water and water as people, we get a very different vision of this world. Things that once seem fixed maybe aren't as fixed as we make them out to be. 
the supposedly immutable boundaries between self and world start to dissolve a bit, and we come to feel that perhaps a self is not an isolated body in a static backdrop of a world, a contained unit with a brain perceiving some objective reality that it gazes upon from the outside, but rather a very permeable, porous thing whose natural state is the dance of change. And we start to feel what Heraclitus said, Everything moves, nothing stands still. The world is a shapeshifter. Mountains crumble to dust, sandstone melts like butter before the persistence of water. Fish bodies become limestone, great lizards become reservoirs of deep carbon. Time is a shapeshifter, ecology is a shapeshifter, nature is a shapeshifter. And if nature is a shapeshifter, if the gods shift shape, then so do we. The Tatars, the Chinese, and the peoples of the Indian subcontinent all tell us of snakes that become persons, and persons that become snakes. In Mali, there are hyena men. In South Africa, people become half-swallows as their spirits take flight. In ancient Egypt, the journey was to become falcon flesh and soar towards the piercing light of the stars. The Filipino myths give us at least four classes of shapeshifters. Off the rugged coast of Scotland and Ireland, selkies roam the northern seas. Seal women, women who can change their skins, live free among the rocks and the thundering surf, dive into the deep. And our shapeshifting is not limited to animal form. Grandmother Momoi becomes the datura plant. The warrior Ulu becomes the breadfruit tree. There was a woman once who became myrrh, her body broken open in a rush of bitter sap. Another became laurel, the sacred plant of prophecy. Another became the river reed, her body fated to be an instrument forever, a vessel for breath, a voice of rapture. What more could we possibly ask for than to become a river reed? Have you heard there was a hunter who became a deer? Acteon, poor Acteon, deep in the woods with his hunting hounds. He caught a glimpse of goddess Artemis bathing in a hidden spring. And who sees the world unclothed is forever changed. He gasped at the sight. She turned her eyes on him. And just like that, he was a deer. He returned to his camp. His hounds failed to recognize him. And they tore him to pieces. Have you heard? But don't weep for Acteon, for it was exactly what he wanted, exactly what we all want, to gain a glimpse of eternity and to never be the same again, to gain a glimpse of the body of the universe and to have our little selves torn apart in the process, to shift shape and be subsumed forever into the body of this world. So Io transforms into a cow, Lycaos into a wolf, Hyakujo into a fox. You never know. It could happen to you. On the holy day, on the night of the worm moon, it could happen to you. At the height of the ritual, deep in the forest, you too could sprout antlers. You too could grow fur. You too could cast away this skin and be the silver trout in the moonlit stream. Because shapeshifting is in your blood.
Your ancestors were shapeshifters. With certainty you are descended from shapeshifters. When we see the prevalence of shapeshifting ritual among all traditional cultures, the prevalence of therioanthropic imagery in Paleolithic art, how it pervades the myths of the world, it is undeniable our ancestors were shapeshifters. Across the world to this day, dancers assume the form of the deer, or the turtle, or the dragon, or the crane, or the tiger. So specific is the Tungus tradition of tiger shapeshifting that they can tell you who each tiger in their extended ecosystem is, which spirits became tigers, which tigers are shamans, even which tiger spirits are married to which villagers. Certain Amazonian tribes will tell you that every jaguar is a shaman, that many people become jaguars and that all jaguars see themselves as people, that this world is an interchangeable tapestry of personhood. From the book Singing to the Plants, quote, The visible form of every species is an envelope, a form of clothing that conceals an internal human form visible only to other members of the same species or to a shaman. This clothing is changeable and removable. Not only do shamans become jaguars, but also humans and animals constantly shift into each other in what anthropologist Peter Riviere has called a highly transformational world. Plants see themselves in human form. Animals see themselves in human form. Animals see their fur, feathers, claws, and beaks as body decorations and cultural instruments. End quote. Of course, the linear mind wants to protest this vision of such a mutable, changeable world, this highly transformational world. And then consider what science tells us about the mutability of bodies. There are atoms that you used to call you that are now trees that are now rivers. Whose water is it that moves through the body? 99% of the molecules in your body are water. Whose water is it? Where did it come from? Where is it going? Does it stay the same shape forever? Remember our shape-shifting sea god, Proteus. The name Proteus means first, an indication that first and foremost, perhaps, we are shape-shifting oceans. The human body is a rippling, undulant ocean, seawater on land, and these protean waters are impressionable. We reshape, we reform around our experiences. We are literally aquatic shapeshifters, as water passes in and out of us, as we evaporate and reabsorb and constantly reform. Are we the bear now? Are we the stream? Are we the grasses now? Are we the river stones? Are we the dream? So here again, the linear mind wants to say, sure, but that's not actually turning into another animal, right? And this is a good inquiry to dive into. Why will so many cultures tell you that they actually shapeshift, that they actually transmogrify into animal form? Why will so many speak of shapeshifting as a common, regular occurrence? Well, as you know that I'm fond of saying on this podcast, it's not a metaphor. It's not a symbol. It's not like cultures over six continents across hundreds of thousands of years all just happen to land on the same mythic narrative by chance. It's clearly something that is felt, that is directly experienced. Our ancestors felt the transformation into the animal body the body of the stream, the body of the mountain and wood, in states of conjunctive rapture. 
You felt a taste of it, perhaps, in a flow state, skiing, you became the mountain. In a flow state, kayaking, you became the river. In entheogenic rapture, you became the grapevine, the oak tree, the embryo, the recapitulation of evolution, the flow of nature itself. Our ancestors enacted rituals of shape-shifting, rituals of transmogrification, in order to conjoin with the natural world, in order to cross the great divide between the waking and often distracted human consciousness and this protean, animate, oceanic world that pulses and breathes and flows. And we did it in culture upon culture upon culture, not because it was a cool idea. We did it because it was necessary. We shapeshift to know. We shapeshift to learn. We shapeshift to communicate. We shapeshift to awaken dormant faculties, to gain the eyes of the eagle, to gain the perception of the deer, to know their movements, to know their hearts, to have a new pair of eyes through which to see and feel the world. Shapeshifting is necessary in a world of sympathetic resonance which we navigate through our bodies. Shapeshifting is how we return to conjunctive knowing, conjunctive unity with nature in our bodies. It is felt in our bodies. So as the drum booms, the senses wake, the neck hairs rise. As the rattle shakes, the senses wake, the neck hairs rise. The drum booms and the neck airs rise. The body becomes a being whose realm is awe, heightened perception who swims in the stream of direct knowing. The tail of the wild dog bristles. The mane of the silver baboon bristles. Every hair feels. Every pore feels. Who knows? Perhaps by the end of this episode, your shape will have shifted. Perhaps your shimmering aquatic neural network is already reshaping around these stories of hyena men and seal women. Perhaps you are waking dormant cells that have knowledge of tides and moors or moss and quartz or the hidden scent of fresh water as it passes through wolf nostrils. Perhaps the neck hairs are already rising in sympathetic wonder. In the heat of the dance, the neck hairs rise. This world is awake, perceiving through its skin, awake, alive, awake, rise, neck hairs of the shapeshifter. This time on the Emerald. find. Shapeshifting is everywhere. Shapeshifting is not only the domain of our Paleolithic ancestors, of those who ran with wolves. The family tree of primal Paleolithic shapeshifting is alive and well. It branches from its 300,000-year roots into Chinese martial arts and all its variegated animal expressions. Tigers, cranes, mantis, dragon, monkey, sparrowhawk, swallow, horse, bear, 
It branches into hatha yoga and its dozens upon dozens of animal poses, into tantric meditation techniques in which practitioners assume the shape of jackal-headed and boar-headed beings, dakinis and yoginis. Tantric meditation, as I talked about in the Metaverse episode, is shape-shifting practice in plain sight. We can put any dharmic ornamentation on it that we want, but if it involves the imaginal assumption of hybrid human-animal form, it's shape-shifting. Shape-shifting is alive in dance traditions across the planet. Dancers from Bulgaria to Botswana to Kerala assume animal form as they dance. Capoeira, the Afro-Brazilian martial art, some say, grew from an Angolan zebra dance. MMA fighters and CrossFit enthusiasts go through regular animal drills. Jiu-Jitsu grapplers enact the coiling power of anacondas. When freestyle skier Eileen Gu closes her eyes and goes through her aerial routine imaginally, before she skis the halfpipe, she's doing something very much born from ancient shapeshifting, using mimicry to embed knowledge in her tissues. The family tree of the shapeshifter goes on and on. Shapeshifting is alive in dance, sport, wrestling, and in theatrical enactment. Because theater, of course, is shapeshifting. Dionysus, holy Dionysus, hidden Dionysus, who was himself the embodiment of the state of conjunctive rapture and gave the Hellenic world the gift of theater, was a shapeshifter. Dionysus, panther. Dionysus, ivy. Dionysus, lion. Dionysus, grapevine. Dionysus, drum. Theater began as ecstatic ritual enactment of shapeshifting in honor of a shapeshifting god. To don the theatrical mask was to shapeshift. Actors are shapeshifters. If you've ever dated an actor, you know actors are shapeshifters. <laughs> Don't tell anyone, but I once transformed into a rhinoceros several times in the course of a week. I was about 23 in a stage production of Eugène Ionesco's Rhinoceros. And I chose the part of Jean specifically because he gets to shapeshift live on stage. My director, Kenny, was from the lineage of physical theater, embodied theater, Jersey, Grotowski, and all those shapeshifters. So he put me through a grueling process of becoming the rhinoceros in my body over and over again. He didn't want abstraction. He wanted me to feel my bones and fascia physically contorting into rhinoceros shape. Of course, in Inesco's play, the rhinoceros is something very heavy, something stuck, the deep historic inertia that leads people to become bound to their viewpoints. To enact that over and over again was intense. It took a few months to recover. Shapeshifting is no trivial matter. But of course, like everything else, we've trivialized it. These days, watered-down shapeshifting sits right at the heart of pop culture. Pixar's new film Turning Red centers around a family that shapeshifts into red pandas. Disney's Brave featured the transmogrification of a Scottish queen into a bear. You can trace a long line of shapeshifting movies back through the decades, a lineage that leads through X-Men's Mystique all the way back to the 1980s film Lady Hawk. But all of these films make shapeshifting into something relatively easy, something almost comfortable. A snap of the fingers and poof, I'm a bear. The visceral, somatic, ecstatic, painful, awe-inducing, 
heart of shapeshifting is gone. To find that, you might have to go more to the horror movies. Movies like The Fly. If you want to dive deep into the horror and pain of the mutation of shapeshifting and your idea of a good time is watching Jeff Goldblum peel his own fingernails off and vomit formic acid onto a donut, there's always the fly. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I had them analyzed. But they were definitely not human. So, yeah, whether sanitized or hyper-dramatized, we return over and over to stories of shape-shifting, because shape-shifting is at the heart of theatrical enactment, the heart of how story becomes embedded, embodied knowledge. And traditionally, ritual theater allowed the audience to shape-shift, too. In entheogenic ritual sympathy, the audience was not so much an audience, but co-shapeshifters who entrained to the movements and voices and lows and highs of the actors. It was meant to take people through a ritualized journey, the wail of the chorus, the boom of the drum, the pathos, the catharsis, the shapeshift. This type of connection, visceral connection, is difficult the less ritualized the theatric process gets. And this is one reason why video games are now far more popular and lucrative than films, because they actually allow the gamer to go through the shape-shifting ritual and enact the story themselves. Why does every culture in the world have theatrical enactment? Why does every culture in the world ritualize shape-shifting? Because enacting the story is how we learn, how we evolve. We don't learn ultimately through mental abstraction. We learn through our bodies. My old theater teacher once told me that theatrical enactment is an evolutionary necessity. We evolve through shapeshifting. Because, of course, evolution itself is a shapeshifter. We naturally shapeshift because our bodies have gone through and still go through a primal process of shapeshifting. Deep in the oceanic protean waters of the womb, we shift shape. You were once a tiny, swollen sphere a yoke-like moon of potentiality, before, layer by layer, you articulated around a central axis and began your journey as a primordial aquatic being with a tail. Our fingers and toes, when they arrive in the womb, are webbed like river creatures. We grow the same throat structures as fish. What becomes the lateral line in fish becomes ears in us. Some of us sprout a soft, downy fur, lanugo, like our seal and elephant cousins. We hold millions of years of animal bodies within us, hold a multiplicity of life forms within us simultaneously. This body, made of spiraling layers of mammal, reptile, bird, and fish tissues. I spoke with Simon Thacker, the founder of Ancestral Movement, who loves nothing more than to reflect on the human body as a water bag, a toothy worm, a vessel of slime, a protean pond scum. Here's Simon. This vision emerging of human consciousness being this little sort of surface layer on top of layers of like, you know, so what we could, again, we, the timescales are just a story, but still we can have this picture of like, okay, this human surface layer being just maybe half a million years old, and then we've got, or whatever it is, 100 million years of primate 
layer slightly deeper than that and then several hundred million years of sort of reptile anatomical structures and behaviors under that and then 100 million more years of fish and then like at the very at the very depth three billion years of bacterial colonies floating in the ancient oceans and then but going back beyond that is just like even greater mystery so this sense of ancestry being learned ways of engaging with the living environment around us where where our focus is drawn to being shaped by our family being shaped by our culture but then being shaped by this huge heritage of ancestry going all the way back to the very beginning mm. so it was this thing of realizing that our oh, ancestry and this concept of ancestor worship being far deeper than i had initially realized thinking like oh these cultures that do ancestor worship it's like oh they're worshiping their dead relatives but realizing that all of these traditions in which they this ancestor worship thing is uh is present as far as i can tell all of these traditions are also traditions in which ancestors are seen as like in in this on this continent the kangaroos are seen as ancestors the the hills are seen as ancestors the trees are seen as ancestors like the rocks and the sky you know so this thing of ancestor worship actually being a way of leading us all the way back all the way back to the original the mysterious origins and that all and then the sense of if we go back far enough my ancestors are your ancestors who go back further my ancestors are the ancestors of the apes and the kangaroos and go back even further all of our ancestors are the ancestors of the snakes and the fish and then even the ancestors of the trees so ancestry becoming this thing of like feeling this practice of feeling feeling back 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 feeling back in time through our bodies and then that connecting us to this to this feeling of being blood relatives of the insects blood relatives of and not just the abstract insects but as i look out the window seeing this bromeliad growing off the tree the feeling that me and that bromeliad are blood relatives you know what i mean we share great 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 grandparents and you can see it in the watery tubes which make up our bodies pulsing drawing drawing nutrients breathing in breathing out you can see it in the structure of our cells and the structure of our of our bodies so yeah, we share genes with birds and fish and sea mammals and reptiles and even trees. Our eyes, in fact, perceive light through the same deep ancestral molecules that allow trees to photosynthesize. Tell me, then, are we uprooted trees? Or are forests of trees actually forests of sentient eyes? Writer and mythologist Sophie Strand speaks eloquently about the ancestral multiplicity that lives in the human body, the many shapes and beings and personhoods inhabiting this one person. Quote, Your body is an ancestor. Every one of your cells holds an ancient and anarchic love story. Around 2.7 billion years ago, free-living prokaryotes melted into one another to form the mitochondria and organelles of the cells that build our bodies today. All you need to do to honor your ancestors is to roll up like a pill bug into the innate shape of safety, the fetal position. The curl of your body, then, is an altar not just to the womb that grew you, but to the retroviruses that 200 million years ago taught mammals how to develop the protein syncytin that creates the syncrophoblast layer of the placenta. If you live in a valley, chances are the ancient glacial moraine, the fossils crushed underfoot, the spores from grandmotherly honey fungi, 
have all entered into and rebuilt the very molecular makeup of your bones, your lungs, and even your eyes. You are threaded through with fossils. Your microbiome is an ode to bacterial legacies you would not be able to trace with birth certificates and blood lineages. You are the ongoingness of the dead. The alembic where they are given breath again. You are built from carbon that once intimately orchestrated the flight of a hummingbird or a pterodactyl. Your body is an ecosystem of ancestors, an outcome born not of a single human thread, but a web of relations that ripples outwards into the intimate ocean of deep time. So all the animals, all the forms we would ever want to shapeshift into, are already within us. And perhaps shapeshifting is not so much an abrupt metamorphosis into a foreign other, but rather a deep rediscovery of selfhood, the re-expression of a self or selves that have always been there within the layers of ancestral, animal, vegetal genes and tissues, a self that has always known that it is not a separate, confined thing, but knows that it is the cedar tree that it is the roiling fog, that it is the elk, that it is the river otter, that it is the seal, that it is the tortoise, that it is the slippery bream. All these selves live within us. Want to transform into a fish? Look no further, you have a fish within you. A serpent? There's a four-curved serpent within you. The body is a festival of ancestral animal arboreal agencies. In you, there is an ancient bird that longs to sing. Your tissues contain a 330 million year genetic path back to the very origins of singing. When we and birds shared a common ancestor who wove the neural structures that would one day allow us both to sing. Scientists have found that we share 55 genes in common with birds that are specifically related to singing. Imagine, every time a bird sings, it is invoking our shared common ancestors. Each bird that sings calls, Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the great-grandmother proto-bird, proto-human shapeshifter that wanted nothing more than for us to sing? Imagine, hundreds of millions of years, it took the world to weave us organs of singing. And yet, still, we silence ourselves. Still, we lock this voice away. So, yeah, we are the whole zoo and then some. The scintillant kaleidoscope of creatures lives inside each one of us. We scratch our heads at medieval imagery of mythical beasts. You know, griffins, manticores, monocerae, chimerae. Beings described as part lion, part eagle, part lizard, part elephant, part goat, part stag. We say, how did they ever come up with that? And yet, that's us. We are the mythical beast. You are the mythical beast. Breathe, shapeshifter. Breathe. Breathe in and sprout spiky horny toad horns up the back. Exhale a shedding of autumn oak leaves. 
Breathe in and the temporal bones expand into a rack of antlers. Breathe out into a cascade of silver-bellied river fish. Breathe in and articulate through the fractal shell of the sea turtle. Breathe out and exude white bristling fur from every hair pore. Breathe in the horses of Poseidon crest to the top of the wave. Breathe out the ocean plummets into a serpentine reverie of loose white foam. Breathe in the world tree emerges, the roots diving into soil, the branches fractaling high above. Breathe out the great tree emits a cascade of misty dew and a flock of noisy songbirds. Breathe in cloud. Breathe out streams of uttered poetry. Breathe in the human being. Breathe out the wolf, the wolf, the wolf. Breathe in the human being. Breathe out the lion. Breathe, shapeshifter. Breathe. This isn't just a fanciful exercise. Linking to the animal body, the vegetal body, the body of the shapeshifter is essential which is why humans have done it for so long. It has deep implications for how we learn, for what we perceive, for how we pass on knowledge. For we learn, first and foremost, before the days of literary abstraction, we learn through becoming things. Here's Simon again. What we pay attention to in ourselves, we notice more of in the world. What we pay attention to in the world, if we have a simultaneous practice of feeling our own bodies while we look out, then when we're looking out, we feel in our bodies what's similar, more of what we're looking out at. And so if we have a practice, and this is one of the wonderful things about the, the deeper aspects of the yoga traditions, with the pranayama practices, and the deeper practices in the Chinese traditions with this really, really intricate work, opening up every single vertebral joint of the spine, to conscious movement and awareness and then linking that with the breath and getting these ripples of movement through the spine and through the deepest like muscular connective tissue aspects of our spine. So our whole spine becomes this sensitive, watery, but really powerful muscular muscular structure. And if as we, we do these practices, feeling that in ourselves and then we look out at the world, we see all of these other spines so that the tuning into the feeling and movement of our own of our own spine and when i say spine it's really you know i'm really not talking about the sort of modern skeletal anatomy view of the spine as this as this rod thing it's like this no it's this watery pulsing undulating fluid but really really muscular and powerful spine and as we we practice that and we start looking out in the world and we see lizards walking with spinal undulations we see cats walking with spinal undulations we see quadrupeds galloping horses all with these spinal undulations we see snakes curling around you know if we're lucky enough to live in places that have um, abundant animal life but even domestic domestic animals and so on and so we then we we feel out into the world and we see all of these spines which are just like ours and so we get this experience of feeling deeper into ourselves. And then when we look out into the world and we see the cat or we see the lizard, we, that, that then causes us to feel even more deeply into, inside ourselves. It's like we see the lizard moving and you see, or you see the cat 
slinking along with its slinky spine. And then that has this feeling that we, it's almost like we're able to feed off, feed off what we see more deeply because of, because we're doing that practice in our own bodies. And so we start to get this real resonance, right? Of what's, what's in me that's also in you. And we see a worm undulating along, undulating along. And if we've done certain things in our physical practice, maybe we get more of a sense of the parts of ourselves, which are still a worm, a blind but sensitive digestive tube running from the mouth all the way through our bellies to our anus. And maybe we can remember or have this delicious feeling that each of us human beings is actually a seven or eight meter long worm that's just been that's just been like folded up and protected inside this, you know, this more recently evolved sort of vehicle for the worm. But this deep central part of us is still just this blind, sensitive, like feeding, digesting, excreting mouth tube. Um, and then again, it's like the deepest practice of all in some ways is then sinking into ourselves as this sensitive completely like rippling quivering in permanent constant uninterrupted response and communication with the outside world bag of breathing water you know and the feeling of, of the body being this breathing pulsing dark sensitive water being that feeling is a feeling of it can be very frightening, it can be very blissful, but it can be very frightening because it can be this feeling that I'm not actually me, we're not actually ourselves. We're this incomprehensible, ancient, pulsing, breathing, sensitive, intelligent life liquid. And then we then we get these experiences of the boundaries softening, right? The boundaries softening. It's like, oh, it's the same life liquid inside, outside, on the surface, moving between the outside and inside the same life liquid in the grass the same life liquid in in the trees in the insects in all of these things what is the heart purpose of shape-shifting of animal mimicry mm -hmm. putting on the hat of the evolutionary biologist is is one of the ways that i enjoy looking at things um, on a purely functional level we have this again this neurological phenomenon of of mirroring our feeling of our own bodies is responding in real time to everything we see at a low degree as if it's happening to us and as a social primate species this is extremely adaptive for moving through groups being able to not just hear and intellectually hear tension in our friends voices and not just intellectually see, oh, they're, they're acting wary, they're acting like they're under threat, but to instantaneously be feeling in our bodies some, some similar thing of what, what they're feeling in their bodies. And when they tense up, parts of us tense up, but it's like, oh, oh, they're not feeling safe. Oh, I'm not feeling safe. Like, oh, they're acting interested in a certain thing. And it's like our, our bodies respond to give us a feeling of what it's like to be them. Um, but then to go further as human beings, there's, a, there's another really interesting phenomenon where if we practice certain kinds of movements, then our mirror neuron system responds more strongly when we see those movements being performed by other people. So then we take this further and we go, ah, oh, people mimicking the movements of animals within their local ecology 
it's like if you take a person who has specifically mimicked the entire movement repertoire of the kangaroo, then that person, when they're watching a group of kangaroos, even if it's not conscious out of the corner of their eye, the movements and body language of those kangaroos will cause an instantaneous feeling in the body of that person who's practiced those movements of what's going on in their world. Is this relaxed body language? Is it threatening body language? Is it mating? Is it associated with feeding, with water, with predators, with this specific predator, with that specific predator, with the entire social and ecological meaning being expressed in the body language of each individual kangaroo? And so then you look at a culture within a local ecology in which it's been traditional for hundreds of thousands of years or since the beginning of time for the entire community to be mimicking the movements of all of the animals in the culture, but also of, of the, all of the animals in the local ecology. And, you know, you get specialists, some people it's their job or their, their natural urge to specialize in certain movements of certain animals. Some people, you know, everyone, and so everyone's seeing and watching the whole thing. And so then you get this, this realization that within the distributed nervous system of that human group, if they're moving through the environment or just sitting still in the environment, the amount of feeling in their bodies of response to what's happening as they see the body language of these birds, of those lizards, of those fish, of those mammals or whatever, that they're feeling in their bodies in real time the social, ecological, environmental community ecology, all of the information that's being expressed in the body language and tone of voice of all of those creatures in the environment. So it's extremely ecologically functional in terms of hunting or foraging for specific kinds of foods or knowing, you know, that what we find in the seasonal calendars of the indigenous cultures on, on this continent of like when this animal is doing this, we know that these flowers are blooming. We know that these fish are riding in the rivers. We know that these mushrooms are sprouting in the hills or whatever it is. So each thing in the entire ecology that's happening at this particular moment in the changing of the cycle of the seasons, that that is being expressed in flowers, air currents, precipitation, and the movements of animals. And so by being more attuned to the movements of animals in this embodied state that's providing essential essential information about the current changes happening in the local ecology so that's a huge reason to be doing it just on a functional level we learn through conjunctive knowing if we want to know the thing we become the thing i'll say that again if we want to know the thing we become the thing. The original meaning of the word knowing in many languages is something much more visceral, much more somatic, much more ecstatic than the modern connotation of knowing. Now we think of knowing and we think of what? Memorizing a fact, right? I know that because I googled it and read about it and remembered it. That's a very, very different knowing than gnosis, than what in Sanskrit is called nana an illuminated, felt, experienced, conjunctive knowing. In the Bible, Dr. Natalie Mylonis tells us, the word knowing is used to mean sexual union. 
conjunctive knowing, subject and object united, which is, of course, the entire purpose of ecstatic trance practice, conjunctive union with the natural world in order to know. So there's a direct connection between shapeshifting and knowing. The shapeshifters historically were the seers. They knew things because they could take on the shape of things. Proteus, that original oceanic shapeshifter, was a seer. Why? Because his mercurial wave body touched all things, felt all things, like fingers of sea foam know the shore. Like fingers of sea foam know the shore. Like fingers of sea foam know the shore. He reshaped into all things, and through his ability to shapeshift, he knew all things that would come to pass because he had become them, had felt the temporal ripples and waves of shape, form, pattern, inevitability, through his ocean body. We see by feeling into things, by changing shape to fit the container of each situation. We know the movement of the elk herd by becoming the elk, and through the hours of dancing, the elk teeth rattling, the elk teeth rattling, the elk teeth rattling, six hours of dancing, of feeling the elk right into our heart. Have you felt an animal's presence right into your heart? We come to know the elk because we're one with it. This is how shape-shifting weaves its way into the heart of insight, of knowing, of human communication models. In fact, the communication of the shapeshifter may very well predate other forms of human communication by thousands of years. Another wonderful, wonderful, wonderful and incredibly deep idea is that in human beings, what we can call physical theater, the physical acting out of stories, is far older than verbal language. There's a lot of evidence pointing towards this, including what we can see in our children as they're growing up, that the noticing things and then expressing them with our bodies, becoming those things, taking on the gestures of the, the rain falling and the truck moving past and uh, expressing through physical theatre, not involving words but involving sounds and taking on the shapes and movements to tell a story that this is far more ancient than verbal language and also far more important than, than verbal language, that this is the primary means of communication for the human species still, and it always has been, this ability of being able to tell stories. Like let's say before we had language, you and I went out and we travelled down the valley and we saw the goannas moving and we tried to chase one, but we couldn't get it. And then we got down to the river and we saw the tracks of the snake and whatever. And then we found some fish and we tried and we, you know, we, we weren't quite able to get them. And then we've got to come back and tell our, tell our friends all about that without words. We have to act out the shape of the mountain, the movement down the, down the trail, the, the movements of the goanna, the movements of the snake, the tracks in the sand. We have to act out everything in the environment we have to be able to take on the shape of the mountain we have to with our bodies become the shape of the trail down the mountain with our bodies 
and our voices. We have to become the shape and the movements of the goanna and the tree that the goanna went up. You know, so we have this through this functional act of sharing the story of what's happened. We have we are forced to take on with our bodies and our voices all of the shapes and movements of not just the animals in the environment, but all of the plants, all of the ecological, all of the environmental geographic features, the rock faces, the crevice in the rocks, the, the waters passing through, the shape of the sky, the movements of the clouds in the sky. We're forced to take on the shapes and movements of literally everything in the entire world mm. in order to tell its story. And then if we cycle back from that to what we were saying before, that if you take on the shapes and movements of the thing in the environment, then your mirror neuron system will respond more strongly to that thing. And you get into a state of, if you've, if you've been practicing the movements of air currents through the valley, then you're walking through the valley and there are air currents moving through the valley and you'll feel in your own body something, your mirror neuron system will respond and you'll feel as if you are the air currents moving through the valley. Mm. And that that act of becoming masterful physical storytellers is making us have a stronger and stronger and stronger empathic response to everything in the environment, including the sky, including the mountains, including the trees, including the water. And it's turning us into this creature that feels everything in the world as if we are it. And so we start to move through the world feeling as if part of us is part of us is everything. Part of us is each blade of grass. Part of us is the whole field. Part of us is the breathing of the sky and the earth, all this. So it's like, in, in my opinion, this shape-shifting stuff is absolutely innate and it's actually, it's actually the heart of what we are. Mm. It is actually the essence of what we are. We are, we are constantly shape-shifting and that's our actual way of engaging with the world. That's where we come from. On the walls of cliffs and caves all across the world, we see them. Half human, half deer. Half human, half swallow. Half human, half horse. Half human, half eagle. Half human, half serpent. Half human, half fish. Therioanthropic images that are strikingly similar across all cultures. From the 25,000-year-old sorcerer of Trois Frères Cave to the Indian depictions of Patanjali, one of the founders of the yogic tradition, who is shown as a serpent from the waist down. Where ancient lineage survives unbroken, this imagery is reflected in the ritual itself. So ancient southwestern art shows humans with deer antlers, and in the deer dance that survives today in the Pueblo cultures, dancers wear antlers as they become the deer. Early anthropologists who encountered these stereoanthropic figures and the rituals around them postulated that they represented some kind of sympathetic magic. You know, our ancestors wanted some type of power over the animal, so we did a ritual to gain its power. And that has a seed of truth to it, but of course it takes it all into the realm of the conceptual and leaves out the most important part. Sympathetic magic was something felt. It was a state of body and mind. It was trance. In trance, one becomes the elk. In trance, one extends and enhances the sense faculties, gains the powers of other creatures, not in an abstract way, but through direct embodiment. Enhancing and extending sense faculties. What do I mean by this? I mean, feel into it. What does it feel like to have fur? 
to have tusks, to have whiskers. Whiskers are a sense organ. Hair is a sense organ. Horn is a sense organ. Teeth are sense organs. Narwhal tusks, it turns out, those nine-foot-long spirals of toothy bone are deeply sensitive. Feathers are sense organs. Quills are sense organs. What does the African warthog feel in the spiral of its tusks? The anteater in its bristling scruff. Feel how a set of antlers would allow you to draw insight and information from the airs around your head, from the shifting breeze. Feel how each bristle of fur, every single fine bristle is its own sense organ, awake to the world through each and every hair. One time, I was in Maui hiking across Haleakala Crater when a cloud bank poured in over the crater rim. Within minutes, we were engulfed in wet cloud. I looked down at my arms. Every single hair had a little droplet of water on it, every single one. And I could feel through those droplets. I could feel through every pore. I knew the cloud through the hair on my skin. The sense faculties wakened through waking up the hairs of the body. How many shape-shifting rituals everywhere involve putting on the fur, the skin of the animal? As Carl Ruck says in The Hidden World, quote, the act of covering oneself with the pelt of the animal was the operative cause of the metamorphosis into a wolf or bear. The nature of the animal persisted in its skin, and it was the contact with this skin that caused the actual metamorphosis. For how long have humans put on the skin of other creatures? In the deer dance, they donned the deer skin. In the eagle dance, a cape of eagle feathers. Evidence of the bear dance goes back tens of thousands of years. The Norse warriors put on the bear shirt, went berserk to gain a state of trance. Medieval shapeshifters carried a belt of wolf hide, Putting on the wolf belt, which was often steeped in a salve of belladonna and other entheogens, facilitated the transformative journey into the animal body. Some San shamans wear a cap made of the scalp of the springbuck antelope. The cap attunes them to the movement of the herd. They feel it through the animal's skin. We put on the skin, we become the animal. This happens not intellectually, not as an idea, but by waking up our own skin, waking up our latent fur. We still carry this memory, this latent gene, this fur as sense organ with us. We grow it in trance. I love doing meditations in which we feel our bodies with specific attention to all of the tiny, the tiny fur all over, the layer of tiny fur all over our whole body. We pay specific attention to the feeling of like our nails, our nails growing out, mm. the feeling of our, our fingernails and toe, all the hair on our body and our fingernails and toenails like growing out like claws mm. from inside us, feeling, feeling our teeth, like feeling our bodies, but feeling all of these structures which are so associated with animalness, mm. like like biting teeth and, 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 and swallowing, the swallowing action 
in our in our digestive tract and in body hair and, and fingernails and realizing that we may have been doing body scan practices as part of our spiritual practice we may have been doing that for many years subconsciously or unconsciously ignoring those specific parts and just scanning our way through the perfectly ordinary human fingers perfectly ordinary human shoulder and neglecting that layer of fur neglecting that feeling of our claws growing neglecting that feeling of teeth and swallowing you know because we've been culturally conditioned to sort of avoid avoid paying attention to those aspects do a simple imaginal exercise when you walk through the forest see if you can feel fur bristling out of the skin each hair a sense organ fine fine antennae tuning us to the greater world we bristle like this and the whole world wakes we bristle and we can sense everything one of the primary somatic indicators of ecstatic trance is the rising of the neck hair what is the devotional trance the bhakti texts ask us without goosebumps without the rising of the hairs of the body and the outpouring of tears as the drum booms the neck hairs rise as the drum booms the neck hairs rise the exact place where the neck hairs rise where that shiver runs up the spine the c7 vertebrae the prominent one right at the base of the neck is considered by many cultures to be a very special place for both the trance practitioners of the kalahari and the followers of brazilian candomblé it is the place where the trance journey is initiated where the individual is yanked into a greater world and assumes the animal shape in the late afternoon thunderstorm the neck hairs rise at the threshold of the dark cave the neck hairs rise the rising of the hairs at the back of the neck is a shape-shifting response it is to make the bristling animal larger and more frightening and also more sensorily attuned our ancestors felt the rise of the neck hair and the acute sensory wakefulness that came with it and ritualized it as the transformation into the animal and again we have to return to what was most valuable for our ancient ancestors what was most precious navigation of actual somatic situations required sympathetic resonance felt in skin and hair and bones navigating certain thick forests requires the participation of the skin hunting requires the connection with increased capacities of vision and the cultivation of animal breath breathing in sync with the animal over a very long period of time this knowledge of the animal sense faculties is embedded in myth Mythologist Joseph Sansonese even says that the myths of particular animals relate directly to the particular sense faculties. This is how important the sense faculties of trance were for our ancestors, and there were sensory faculties available to them that we have very little reference for. Faculties of sight, of touch, of listening, of knowing that we have forgotten. Some hunters know how to listen through the animal's tracks. Some cultures say that when a child is born and the placenta buried under a certain tree that the child will be able to listen through that tree for their entire lives. The trance state is the waking up of these sense faculties that live locked deep within the animal body. So trance is seen 
as the animal itself. Trance is a horseman. Medieval poet Amir Khusrau invokes the horse of trance, saying, quote, I lay my head down in sacrifice on the path that you will ride, my cavalier. Trance is a lion, say the Sufi Ishawiyas, and the son of the Kalahari and the goddess devotees of Himachal Pradesh. Ishawiya acolytes are given totem animals that from then on they will embody in trance. They embody lions, lionesses, jackals, boars, and more. In trance, Ishawiya practitioners shapeshift into camels and chew cactus spines without bleeding. They enact extraordinary leaps, tearings apart, devourings as the practitioners become lions and panthers. Trance is a tiger. My children, tigers, come, come, cries the Tungus shaman, inviting the tiger to take her body over. From the foot of my sacral tree, come to my body, come to my body, tigers. Appear by the foot of my sacral tree. Shake yourselves off and stretch yourselves. Shake yourself off and stretch yourselves, invoking the bodily movements that accompany trance shapeshifting. The assumption of the animal body. Trance is the shapeshifter. Young initiates return after their solo immersion in the Siberian wild with torn clothes and bloody mouths telltale signs that they've transformed into animals while gone. The entire practice of Buryat shamanism centers around the transformation into the tutelary animal, the kubilgan. The shaman, Mircea Eliadi says, can forsake the human realm, transform into animal form, don the mask, and enter the other world with ease. They journey as a hawk, as a fish, as a goose, using sonic mimicry, the transportive power of animal voice, to soar into the sky to plunge into the underworld. Quote, Becoming a bird oneself indicates the capacity while still alive to undertake the ecstatic journey to the sky and beyond. So the shapeshifter knows the shore. The shapeshifter knows the sea. The shapeshifter knows the forest. The shapeshifter knows the sky. The shapeshifter knows the sky. What ecstasy to know the sea and the sky with one's very own skin. And yet, the process of shapeshifting is not always blissful. The trance of the shapeshifter is intense, sometimes painful, and often requires significant endurance. Shivers, shakes, convulsions, there's an ordeal involved, which points to its deep necessity. For why would we go through the ordeal if it weren't absolutely necessary? In many myths, shapeshifting arrives after a trauma of some kind. The trauma of a horrific family curse causes Smyrna to shapeshift into a myrrh tree. It is in pain and fear and shame that she shapeshifts. Trauma on a neurological somatic level is, in fact, a shapeshifter. Trauma reconfigures neural patterns. The neural tree shifts shape as new growth patterns arise. It's now being shown that Increased intuitive sensitivity, new abilities to see, new dimensions of empathy often arise from trauma. And in modern trauma discourse, this is unfortunately sometimes used to invalidate those empathetic experiences, to say, oh, that's just the trauma talking, when in fact it's far more intricate than this. The trauma is the shapeshifter that sparks the ability to see and awake greater sensory faculties than were there before. 
In her traumatic transmogrification, Smyrna herself becomes a source of powerful medicine. Medusa's traumatic transformation gives her power she never had before. And this isn't a way of saying that this somehow justifies the trauma, that it's all worth it, or that there should be some type of thankfulness for the gift of trauma. Not at all. That's up to each person. It's simply a recognition that trauma at its heart is a shapeshifter. What comes from that shapeshifting varies tremendously and is a deeply intricate journey that exists beyond simple labeling of it as good or bad. The priestesses of Apollo harnessed trauma to take themselves into visionary states that were themselves traumatic, yet they did it anyway. Our relationship with trauma is as intricate as our relationship with our own shifting bodies in a world of shifting bodies. How to work with the shapeshifter that is trauma? For many cultures, it was a constant return to ritual intensity, a return to the protean shapeshifting state itself, in which bodies become more fluid and somatic patterns over time can be shifted. The shape of trauma repatterned through regular access to the state of the shapeshifter. Sometimes the trauma was deliberately milked as the gift. Sometimes the patterns of the wound were amplified for visionary purposes. Sometimes the trauma was regrown and repatterned in rituals of mass grieving and catharsis. So shapeshifting is intricate. It can be beautiful and redeeming. It can be painful and intense. It can be all these things at once. It can reshape old trauma patterns, and it can also instigate new ones. All of these are aspects of ecstatic embodiment. Often, shapeshifting happens beyond the shapeshifter's control. In many myths, the gods transform people into animals as a form of what on the surface appears to be punishment or retribution. Zeus transforms Lycaeus and his family into wolves. Demeter turns Aesculabus into a lizard and Lynchos into a lynx. Athena transforms Arachne into a spider. On the surface, these stories can seem like the simple retributive justice of detached, vengeful deities. But again, it's often far deeper than this. Often, the inadvertent shapeshift is part of a larger cycle that returns always to conjunctive union, to knowing, to understanding the world through a return to rapture. In the Japanese Mumonkan, there is a wonderful koan about a monk named Hyakujo. One of his disciples asks him a question, is the enlightened man above causation or not? In other words, does enlightenment mean being above this world of shifting change, of dynamic ecology, of birth and death, of cause and effect? And of course, the classic Buddhist answer would be, yes, enlightenment means being beyond all this, beyond the wheel. So Hyakujo answers, yes, the enlightened man is above causation. And as a result, he's made to live as a fox for 500 lifetimes. 500 lifetimes in the body of the bristling fox. Nose to the ground, eyes in the dark forest, deep within the cycle. Is this a punishment? At the end of the 500 lifetime sentence, one commentator says Hyakujo thoroughly enjoyed his fox body, and that it should be buried as one would bury a deceased monk. So the enlightenment came through the full embrace of causation. The fox body was the vehicle through which the cycles were known. Was his shape-shifting a punishment, or was it a portal to a deeper knowing?
a portal to a deeper knowing. Enter King Nebuchadnezzar. You probably remember hearing his name, another one of those glorious, ancient, really long Semitic names, Nebuchadnezzar. But do you remember his story? Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the law. He thought he was above nature. He thought that all the glory of Babylon, everything that had been built and constructed, was his glory. And so, God turned him into an ox and sent him grazing in the field for seven years. And if that was the whole story, that would sound like a pretty straightforward story of a man crossing the line with God and suffering the retributive consequences. You know, being turned into a dumb animal for his insolence. But that's not the whole story. The story says a whole lot more. It speaks of the time Nebuchadnezzar spent as an animal. It speaks of him shape-shifting, sprouting feathers and talons like an eagle. It speaks of him drinking the dew of the divine, which is synonymous with trance. It speaks of the knowing, there's that word again, the knowing that arrived in his heart through the transmogrification into the animal body. As Jared Beverly writes, quote, The text states that his body and flesh are modified. In the Aramaic version, his hair grows like a bird's feathers and his nails like a bird's claws. The Greek versions add lions to the mix. The original Greek compares the king's hair to eagle feathers and his nails to lion's claws. Some versions give him a lion's mane. Here's Dr. Natalie Mylonis. I'm in Daniel 4, verse 16, and it says, Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. That's one translation. And the the Aramaic says, um, let a wild animal's heart be given to him. The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. Right. Like, why would it say that he was covered in the dew of heaven if it was simply a story of someone being kind of punished and made to live like a, an animal, right? Yeah. It says, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lift my, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. And then he breaks out into praise song after being one with the wild and literally embodying this this wildness and this connection to these other beings. Um, And that word for reason, like who makes these translations, is the word for knowledge in Aramaic. Mm. So it comes from the root to know, which is a very special word in terms of Genesis, knowing being procreation and making love is to know in Hebrew as well. Nebuchadnezzar now becomes not the victim of punitive justice, but the shapeshifter who experiences the heart of animal knowing, whose realm is antlers and stones, dew and feathers, horns and wild foraging. The one who was distanced from nature, thought himself above nature, and comes to re-know God through the transmogrification into the animal body. It's how his heart opens to knowing. And it's interesting, no matter how hard it tries, the Bible just can't get away from its animist roots. It is totally infused with birds and talking wind and waters and snakes and trees, and finally focuses in on a New Testament protagonist who himself is a shapeshifter. Have you heard? Jesus was a shapeshifter.
A 12th century Egyptian Coptic text attributed to St. Cyril speaks of the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Quote, How shall we arrest Jesus, say the soldiers? For he does not have a single shape, but his appearance changes. Sometimes he is ruddy, sometimes he is white, sometimes he is red, sometimes he is wheat-colored, sometimes he is pallid like the ascetics, sometimes he is a youth, and sometimes an old man. And the theologian Oregon says in the Contra Celsum, quote, To those who saw Jesus, he did not appear alike to all. Jesus Shapeshifter Jesus shapeshifter, and if you strip away the years of cultural baggage and the grand theological veneer, what do you find? Something liquid and protean right at the heart of the stories of Jesus. A shapeshifter who transmuted water and walked upon it, in whose presence silver fish proliferated, yeast expanded, loaves multiplied, water changed shape, tissues healed, doves spiraled towards the sky corpses reanimated, a shapeshifter associated with the sea, with the night heron that plucks out its own chest feathers to provide warmth for its young, and with the symbol of the fish itself and its protean waters of love. But of course, this is buried deep in the Christian tradition, which from very early on fought, as Dr. Mylana says, against its own animism. The early Christian fathers declared unequivocally that study and intellectual knowledge were the tools to reveal the will of God rather than felt ecstatic embodiment. The trance practices, the dances, the conjunctive ecstasy, the shape-shifting, this was not of God but of something else. And so shape-shifting became associated with the demonic. The body, that sinful thing, was to be covered, clothed, restrained, treated as a static vessel for a spirit that gained redemption only through the appropriate church channels, certainly not through ritualized transformation into birds and fish and seals and bears and lions. As Simon Thacker recounts, this silencing and restraining of the shapeshifter carried with it profound implications for bodies, for our ability to know through feeling to care for the planet and for each other. Because these states are ways back into deep connection with the rest of the living world, those ways have been actively suppressed in the recent history of you know what's turned into modern culture in, in Australia or the Western world or whatever silly term we're trying to use. They've been actively suppressed, deliberately suppressed, because they are the movements of their writhing, ecstatic undulations. They're like serpent-like. They're they're grotesque, they're animalistic, they remind us of all of this stuff of how deeply, 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 deeply interconnected we are with the rest of the living world. And our recent history, our recent cultural history has really been a story of really trying to close that stuff off and emphasize how we're different, how we're not that, we're not that, we're not that. Don't express that in your body. The only place you can express that in your body is during sex behind closed doors where no one can see. If we don't pay attention to our bodies, the parts of our bodies that we don't pay attention to, our ability to feel them gets worse. It's that use it or lose it principle. If we don't pay attention to what's happening at every single vertebral level of our spine, we lose the ability to feel every single vertebral level of our spine. Mm. If we don't spend time consciously feeling all of the changes happening inside our chest, between our organs, 
you know, washing through our insides. If we don't pay attention to it, we lose the ability to feel it. Mm. And if we lose the ability to feel it, then our ability to empathize with other beings is massively reduced because the empathizing happens in the feeling of our body. Mm. And so we've got this, we've got this really terrible cycle of creating environments that make us feel the natural world less along with cultures which have us just we're operating off our eyes and our mouths and our fingertips and not feeling our bodies and so our ability to feel our bodies is massively reduced and then our ability to empathize with the natural world is massively reduced even more because we can't even feel the parts of our bodies which would be empathizing Shapeshifting mythologies and practices speak directly to the separation that human beings feel from the natural world. To shapeshift, to assume the body of the waters and the diving red tail and the snowy owl, is to embark on the great traverse back from the very human state of separation to the conjunctive union with the natural world. Culture upon culture has its mythology of separation. The story of why we feel so separate why we alone, of all the beings that populate this world, feel half of it and half removed. A primal conjunction sundered, and we human beings must find our way back. Even the myth of the Christian fall, so twisted over time for various worldly purposes, has at its heart an animism and a conjunctive union. To be cast from the garden with its great tree and its spiraling serpent, is to be cast from conjunctive union with the animate. And what causes this separation ultimately is not sinful temptation, but the simple fact of the human brain. The mental faculties that give us the gift of rational thought and self-awareness also form a great rift between us and the natural world around us. And so, the shapeshifter stories offer us a way to understand the place of human beings within the natural world. We are the shapeshifters. Not quite fish, not quite birds, not quite deer, not quite bear, but capable through the great traverse of the shapeshifter of becoming each one, of reuniting with each of the many animal and vegetal and mineral bodies that comprises us of finding our way home. There is something beautiful, something incandescent, something profoundly sad about this place that we hold. Something about eyes looking from the outside, longing to be inside. Us. Something about us. One with nature and separate from nature at the same time. There is a deep grief present in many of the shapeshifting stories. The grief of a species not knowing where it stands within the natural order. I saw the dolphin playing in the waves. Am I too meant to play in the waves? Or am I meant only to see it from the outside, always as a watcher? When did we separate from this pulsing world, this living geography? And once we did, could we ever return again? In a classic Celtic tale, a fisherman 
on a lonely isle, finds a woman sleeping on the beach, and next to her a discarded seal skin. She is a selkie, a shapeshifter, who can assume seal form when she puts on the skin. But the fisherman is lonely. He longs for companionship, so he hides the skin so that the selkie can't return to the ocean. She wakes. Since she can't find her skin, she is stuck there in the company of the fisherman. He is patient, he is kind. Eventually they fall in love and marry. But she never forgets. Never forgets the sea. Every night she gazes out at the ocean longing to return. Every night the thundering waves call to her, return, return. Feel the cold North Atlantic swells on your sleek skin. Dive into the fathomless dark. Dream among the kelp forests and stones. Return, return. But she cannot return. Time passes and they have children. She loves her new family, but still she hears the call. Return, return. One day, rummaging through an old closet, perhaps her own child finds the seal skin. Her old discarded skin. What's this, mommy? Perhaps the child asks as the tears of recognition begin to fall. She takes the skin, she puts it on, and she disappears forever into the sea. The fisherman is left to stare out night after night at that which he tried to hold but never could, that which he tried to conjoin with but that still remained separate. So, who are we in this story? We are her, and him, and the children, and the sea. All of it is us. We are the outsider longing for union. We are the insider who lost her way, trying forever to return. We are the children of two parents named conjunction and separation, offspring of a lost unity. And we are, at last, the great protean body of the world, this world of animacy within which the whole dance, the whole story is set. I mourn for us, stuck here on this island of separation, trying in vain to bargain our way back. And yet, the great beauty, of course, of being separate is that we alone, of all the creatures, we alone get to make the great traverse back, the great journey home. Often I encounter people in the new animist movement lamenting that we are not fully animal, lamenting that the separation ever took place. And I understand this sadness, I feel it. But that is also, one could say, our place. And that place too is special. That place too is beautiful. For it is a place where love can be felt. The place of the shapeshifter, the place of the human, is not the place of the tiger who is a tiger and always remains a tiger. The journey is not to become animal and dwell there as animal forever. The journey is to be a human, in a state of becoming, returning, emerging, 
breathing along this pulse of separation and return. Our journey is the journey of the shapeshifter. You know, the human, like, for all the separation we feel and for all the consequences of that, we also get to experience things that I don't know if other animals get to experience in the same way. We also get the beauty of return, mm-hmm. right? Which is really ultimately right at the heart of what love is. Like we, we get to experience the journey from separation to return. And we get to make this traverse that not many from our thinking brains to our animal brains or from our thinking brains to our conjunctive brains. And there's a deep beauty in that, you know, that helps me out when I, when I start feeling like, oh my God, I'm so separate. I feel so separate. I feel so separate. It's like, well, my place is the place of the shapeshifter and and I get to make the traverse back to, you know, the fluid connectivity and that, that pulse, you know, and this is like related to the pulse of bhakti and the pulse of devotion, that pulse of separation and return has a, has a great beauty to it too. Like the fact that we mm. get to do the deer dance or we get to do the, the animal form. I think this is one of the great beauties of being human in a way. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I feel like it's our, it's our job. It's, <laughs> it's our job. It's, it's, it's our, it's our place is to be like a, like a medium, like a, like a, a, a channel through which all these different things can can flow through. Like our superpower is adaptation, is our ability to adapt to all of these infinitely varied changing ecologies, like from the tundra to the desert to the forest, to, you know, living on the ocean, people who can who can dive underwater for long periods of time to harvest shellfish and people who can travel to the tops of mountains or live in snow caves with no clothes, like, you know, like human beings being shifting, 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 shifting. And and people in these ecologies, maybe there's an initial period of extreme disturbance when the humans arrive in the fossil record, if you like. But then what we see in cultures, in surviving cultures within local ecologies is humans working as a custodian, as a participant, as a caretaker, as a as a, a nurturer of local ecologies. And so in, in Australia, we have, you know, we have kinship systems in which individuals are born into custodian roles of certain creatures and they're not allowed to eat that creature. But they tell everyone else when they're allowed to eat that creature mm. because their, their job is to be attuned to where that creature is, how it's moving, where in the environment it's moving, is it thriving over here and struggling over there, you know, are they... How are they moving? Are there, how are their populations and like creating refuges for that creature to, to really thrive undisturbed? And then as they come out, telling their neighbors, okay, you can go and hunt, you can go and hunt over there. And then the person whose responsibility is not never eating that creature, you know what I mean? And so this picture emerges of humans in a role of like a loving, a loving caretaker, still, of course, at the mercy of the weather and the, the sun and the floods and still struggling to survive at times. but but as a as the only consciously trying to fit into the cycles in a way that makes the cycles better participating in the cycle in a way that like improves it and that's what's coming out of again this this shape-shifting ability this shape-shifting ability to always be shifting and always be shifting and then always feeling always feeling and then the more we feel the more we realize oh oh i'm not okay with that oh i can i want i feel compelled to try to try to help 
in some way, or at least to try and not do not do this kind of harm that comes from me not not being able to like oh I didn't notice I couldn't feel what was happening and then some elder helps helps tune us into what's going on and then we get this thing of like oh that's not okay that's not okay we need to we need to help our our cousins the the honeybees or we need to I want to help my 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 brother the the bromeliad here this individual um, thrive and that's coming from that's coming from the shape shifting that's coming from the shape shifting and at the very heart of it i feel is that is that sense that like again that when we feel really deeply into the body the body no longer feels like the body the body merges with the external world the body no longer feels separate from the mm-hmm. external world when we go deep enough into the body we find that the body is is the world And the good news for us is that we can find our way back. How quickly does the skin remember when the cold forest mists arrive? How quickly do those old forgotten reflexes come into play when we build a fire the old way? How quickly do the ancestral bodies of fish and birds and leaping tigers spring to life when we start to move and sweat? How quickly does the ribcage transmute from a locked box to a fluid dance of individuated quills, feathers, accordion bellows, with one deep breath. Breath is a shapeshifter, and a return to the shapeshifter is only one breath away. Breathe, shapeshifter. Shapeshifting is one breath away, one breath away, and the quills sprout. One breath away, the eyes widen like belladonna flowers at night. One breath, and the conjunctive fibers are woven between us and this breathing world. The access back into that full connection, it's so, it's right here. It's so close. Mm. You know, it's literally, it's literally, literally there. And how could it not be, of course, you know? We're never disconnected, like. We have this we have this thing of like there's the tragedy of what we've lost but again the way back in is just as it's it's all right there it's all right there any practices which involve people feeling into the breath feeling into the body like uh, allowing the body to move exploring the subtle movements of the, the deep structures of the body they'll all lead us back in my opinion to these practices of nature worship these practices of feeling connected to the rest of the living world in groups because when we feel into the body, that's what we find, you know, beyond a certain point, the certain level of like personal trauma and cultural this and oh, my shoulder hurts and whatever. But beyond that level, once we go, once we go deeper, what we find is the, that mysterious, that mis- mysterious breathing, pulsating nature. When we relax enough, even our self softens and dissolves. And then it comes back again and then it dissolves again. And of course, modern culture is all designed to stop us from ever relaxing enough to allow our sense of self to dissolve. But when we start to do these relaxation practices and we return to that state, we really get this feeling that, oh, this is this is a really natural state. Actually, this is this feels like it should be or may may have been a baseline activity of relaxing to the point that the self dissolves, coming back out and the self emerges again and doing something, having a chat, looking at something looking at something interesting and then okay the that moment's passed and then 
relaxing back into that baseline in which the sense of self is open and it's just it's just life it's just this ocean of continuous continuous life and this imminence this ready access to shape-shifting is important because not only can we find our way back we must shape-shifting is a necessity Shapeshifting is essential to re-establishing a felt relationship with a living world. To save the forest, we must not only put a fence around the forest, we must become the forest. And in our fierce becoming, others will be called to become the forest, too. A relationship of sympathy, of empathy, requires that we shapeshift that we feel our connection to the world in our bodies, that the flight of swallows makes swallows fly within us, us, that the flow of waters makes waters flow within us, that the steadiness of the mountain steadies us, that the lament of the songbird becomes our lament. We can wake hidden faculties, shift our shape, and embody deeper the great lament of the world. And then just like that, we can dissolve into a sky of slow, steady patience. Perhaps these days we must do both, embody at once the vast, all-accepting silence of the world and the urgent grief cry of the world at once. That is a true act of shape-shifting. It once was that the shape of the individual protean body only had to shift in sympathetic resonance with the immediate community and the immediate ecology. Now, we are called to a much greater act of shape-shifting. The porous feeling layer of our bodies, the antenna, the fine hairs of empathy must grow to include the whole world, to cover the whole world. The bristling deer pelt of our empathy must be cast over the whole world. Pan's dappled fawn hide covers the entirety of the world. Our body, the great sphere body of the world, through us pass all the waters of the world, all the waters of the world, shapeshifter. Together we express and mirror and enact the whole biome of ancestral songs and cries, the voices of the extinct that live now only in the genes of those who remain, the vegetal voices, the animal voices, the mineral voices. Together we amplify, sing, until our song sounds, sounds, and resounds, and together we grow a new feeling skin for humanity out of shared resonance. And then at night, we throw our new blanket aside and dance beneath the living star. For in time, this great shape, this world shape, this galaxy shape, will shift. The shape of the grief of the world and the shape of its joys. The fleeting shape of the map of nations. The shape of the structures of power. The shape of oceans and the shape of bodies. All this will shift. And we, beloved, we will become bones, and then dust, and then stones, and then lichen, and then moths, and then sparrows, and then falcons riding beams of sunlight, 
and then dust again. For death is the great shapeshifter. Time is the great shapeshifter. All forms seen and unseen take shape and then shift as the very world comes to know itself. Know itself, know itself. Yet again, yet again, yet again. And that, of course, would have been a great place to cue the music and end this episode. But there's one more thing. We've talked about the shapeshifter in terms of evolutionary biology. We've talked about the shapeshifter in terms of trance. We've tried to invoke the shapeshifter, invoke with the sound of voice and the hum of the drone and the boom of the drum and the hiss of the rattle and the bristling of the bear skin, the deer skin, the wolf pelt. But we've done so in this episode mostly within the realm of the felt imaginal. I felt like a lion in trance. I felt like a tiger in trance. I gained the powers of the elk in trance. And that's not quite the whole picture. A podcast patron recently described to a group of us how in her native Colombia there have been cases not so long ago when jaguars were shot by hunters, and the hunters found when they got close human bodies instead of jaguar bodies. Only a couple of decades ago, the entire extended family of Nikolai Beldi, a Tunga shaman, all saw him, right before their eyes, transform into a tiger. They ran, in terror in fact. Remember way back to episode 2, the case of the man who grew horns? It wasn't just that he felt the horns, it was that everyone else around him saw it too. Everyone, the whole village saw it. Because shape-shifting is real. Does that make the neck hairs rise? That there are those alive, afoot in the wilds of this world who change skins as easily as you and I change clothes? Can you feel it? Wake, senses. Wake. Bristle, bristle, fur of the white deer. Bristle, bristle, fur of the white deer. Fly, fly, feather of the falcon. Rise, neck hairs of the shapeshifter. Special thanks to Simon Thacker for agreeing to appear on this episode. And you can find more about Simon's work in the Ancestral Movement Facebook group. That's Ancestral Movement. And if you want to listen to my entire conversation with Simon, it's available for podcast patrons at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. And as always, this episode contains reference to many books, articles, films, etc. These include When God Was a Bird by Mark Wallace, The Cratylus by Plato, The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony by Roberto Colasso, The Bible, On the Life and Passion of the Christ, A Coptic Apocryphon by Roloff Vanderbroek, Oregon's Contra Selsum, Singing to the Plants, A Guide to Mestizo Shamanism in the Upper Amazon by Stefan Beyer, 
Inside the Neolithic Mind by David Lewis Williams, Rhinoceros, the play by Eugène Ionesco, Speech and Bird Songs Reflect Convergent Evolutionary History by Edmund Blair Bolas, writing in Bioscience in March 2011, Deep Listeners by Judith Becker, Music in Trance by Gilbert Rouget, Nebuchadnezzar and the Animal Mind by Jared Beverly, writing for the Chicago Theological Seminary in the Journal for the Study of the Old Testament, Tiger Rituals and Beliefs in Shamanic Tungus Manchu Cultures by Tatiana Bulgakova, Gateless Barriers and Comments on the Mumonkan by Zenke Shibayama, Shamanism by Mircea Eliadi, The Hidden World, Survival of Pagan Shamanic Themes in European Fairy Tales, Brave, the 2011 film by Disney Pixar, Turning Red, the 2022 film from Disney Pixar, the work of Sophie Strand. You can find more at sophiestrand.com. That's S-O-P-H-I-E strand.com. The X-Men Universe from Marvel. Ladyhawk, the 1985 film starring Matthew Broderick, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Rutger Hauer. And, of course, the 1986 film The Fly starring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the emerald podcast there are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site i hope you enjoy today's episode and until next time may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. Yeah.